Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations? Lamentations can be found on page 869, 869 of your pew Bibles. Lamentations is a book not very well known to most of us, at least likely not very well known to many of us. Before we read Lamentations 1, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord God, we come before you and pray that you would speak to us at this time and through your word, and that you would uphold he who speaks, that what would be said would be the right and true interpretation as well as application to our lives, and that we all who hear would have your spirit work in us, that we would receive your word and that it would strike us, mold us, and change us, but especially that we would see you in it. That is the purpose of turning to your word. We thank you for this great lament, this great book of grief. And may we see the lessons here for us as well as the expression of heart that we, we have recorded in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lamentations 1. And I preface reading this with the sorrow of this scene laid before God's people before the prophet here as he writes and pens this poem, Lamentations 1. And I want to just put the imagery before us before we even read it. The imagery is of the poet, prophet, standing over a burning city and everything is desolate and gone. The people of the Lord in his, in his mind have seemingly been forsaken and all is lost. That's the setting of Lamentations and we begin How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. 
She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious in the street. The sword bereaves in the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint." sends the reading of Lamentations 1. I would ask that you would keep your Bibles open this evening. In November 2013, Typhoon Haiyan struck the Philippines. At the time, it was the strongest tropical cyclone ever recorded at landfall. It was the strongest ever in terms of sustained wind, feeds at, wind speeds at landfall. It caused catastrophic damage, destroying whole towns and villages. It caused 6,300 confirmed deaths with estimates of the nameless dead much higher. And it rendered some one million people homeless. One little girl managed to reach one of the evacuation centers as the typhoon came. The waters began rushing in and her mother shouted at her to go up to the second floor. And at that moment she cried out this prayer. Jesus, please, enough. 
Jesus, please, enough. I think that little prayer captures well Lamentations 1 and Lamentations as a whole. Uh, Barely audible whimper. Jesus, enough. That's what we see in Lamentations. As the city lies desolate. As the people grieve and wonder what has gone wrong, and as the poet-prophet writes these words, trying to make sense of what's seen before him, trying to make sense of what is the downfall of the church, it would seem. The promised seed that was going to strike down Satan himself has failed. It's gone. Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye, has been wiped from the earth. The covenant people, and and we read a good psalm to set this up, Psalm 59, who, who can say that God is their steadfast fortress, have found themselves without any fortress. And the sad reality is that this lady Zion makes her confession, makes her lament, knowing all the while it is her fault. She has rejected her Lord and has been judged. Now what? That's lamentations that plead, God, please, enough. At times in life, we are brought to a very similar place, a place of lament, a place like with a little girl, all we can say is, is this is too much for me, Jesus, enough. Why this series? Why do we turn to Lamentations now? Well, apart from the fact that it's in God's Word and meant for us to be heard, it's also a, an aspect of God's Word that's, that's routinely neglected, lament, and grief. In fact, it's likely many of us haven't had much time in the book of Lamentations. It's likely that many of us haven't really seen the point of it, and yet there's a profound point. So why do we study it? Because we need these words And we need to understand how we lament and express grief from the worst position possible. We need this series because there's many among us who grieve and lament. And it comes at a fitting time even for our own body of believers here that we would go through lamentations. It's important to learn and delve into the feelings of grief. We spend a lot of time talking about right and wrong, about faith and anxiety, but what about suffering and grief from the perspective of lament? This book is profound in how it displays the heart of the sufferer and gives us a vocabulary that we can copy in which we can present before the Lord himself such statements where we can wrestle with such questions that the people then, that the prophet then was suffering with. We need this book. But why do we need to study Lamentations? Because deep-seated in this book, and this is what I pray we would find as we go through it, there is a picture of God here that is wondrous. And it's wondrous because it comes to us from a vantage point we rarely look at. It comes to us from, like I said, the worst possible position of a people in rebellion, in fact, an adulterer calling back to the husband she scorned. And the picture of God that we'll see as we go through it is tremendous in light of this situation, in light of what was done there. 
As one author put this, we go through lamentations because we need to allow those to express doubt and grief, to be able to bring before the Lord the deepest pains of their life, the deepest questions that they wrestle with, and that's exactly what lamentations does. This author continues, It isn't a devotional that in the span of a page expects the mourner to go from grief to trust. That's a good way of putting it. This isn't a single-page devotional that you read at the end of an evening meal. This is a well-thought-out, a well-structured lament meant to take us through the journey of grief and, in fact, leave us there, yet with hope. We are privileged to come to Lamentations and see God here. And so we look first at the introductory material just to set up what's going on here. The author of Lamentations is unknown. The traditional view is that this is the prophet Jeremiah. We can't say that for sure. I think that is quite likely. Good guess, but we can't say that for sure. It's an unknown author. We will refer to him as the poet, the prophet, the narrator. This is how he speaks throughout facilitating this poem. The historical situation is the aftermath of the destruction of, of, the, of Jerusalem by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 587 and 586. Babylon had risen to power after the collapse of the Assyrian Empire. Initially, Egypt held power over Judah, but the rising power of Babylon was unstoppable. They came in, and in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar routed the Egyptians in the Battle of Carchemish. And from that day on, Babylon was the imperial power for the next 70 years in that region. And in these years, Judah swung between submission and rebellion. They were, seeking, they were courting other nations. They were seeking Egypt or they would seek Babylon and they would, they would for a while submit to Babylon, but then they would rebel and vice versa to Egypt. And so what they had ended up doing is they ended up making themselves a stench to both nations as they would flop between one and the other. And as this nation would come in and set up a ruler and this puppet would either continue that process or rebel. And, and, and that's going on in this situation. And before the fall, Jeremiah and the the prophet of the Lord comes to them and tells them to stop doing this, tells them to trust in God alone, tells them to submit to what's coming. But rather they continue to go back and forth. Rather their false prophets tell them that the Lord is on their side. They tell them, Jerusalem cannot fall. It is the city of God, the false prophets say, where the true prophet tells them it will fall. And finally, the combination of their unrepented sins, their political folly, brings them down. And that's the historical setting of this text. What about the structure? This is one of the reasons, especially I wanted you to keep your Bibles open. Lamentations is one of the most structured books in the Bible. Of its five chapters, four of them follow into an acrostic pattern. An acrostic is the Hebrew poetic device where each verse begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet and it goes through the alphabet in that way. And our English verse renderings correspond to this perfectly. Chapter 1 is an acrostic poem that goes through the alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You see 22 verses in chapter 1. If you flip through, you'll see the same in chapter 2. There are 22 verses because it repeats that pattern. Chapter 3, that lies at the center of these five poems, ups everything. And you'll notice that though it's the same length, there's 66 verses 
And that's because chapter 3 of Lamentations takes each verse and each line of that verse repeats the Hebrew letter three times. So in the previous poems, it's re- it uses the Hebrew letter once, but in chapter 3, it repeats it three times before moving on. So in English, it would, it would be as if each line of each verse goes and starts with an A, 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 B, 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 and so forth, all the way down, and it does that in this tripled way, and it lies at the center of the book. Chapter 4, you'll see, returns to the pattern of 22 verses. That's an acrostic poem. And chapter 5 still has 22 verses, though at the end you don't see the the structure of the acrostic there. Why do we go so in-depth in that? Because that structure is itself informative. The high structure of it shows you how well thought out this lament is. This is not just a stream of consciousness. These are not words that are haphazard and not well thought out. This is the prophet's attempt to catalog all of grief. And the very structure centers chapter 3 as as the important hub of the whole book. And yet it takes a long journey to get there, as we've seen already in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and 2, you'll find it hard to find anything to place hope in. You'll see grief, and even that's intentional. We're not rushing to the answer. The the mourner is allowed to grieve properly, but the mourner is also being taken to a point. It's not an endless lament. It's not a meaningless lament. It's moving to a purpose. The characters of Lamentations that we'll see is that narrator, that poet-prophet, But as well as you'll see in the first two chapters, there's another character. You probably couldn't pick up on it as it's it's hard just as we would read through it. But there is a personification, or, or rather I should say there's the voice given to the city itself. We'll call her Lady Zion. Lady Zion speaks, and that's the structure of the chapter. The narrator speaks through the first 11 verses, cataloging what has happened, cataloging this lament. And there's various interjections from the, the city that's given a voice, this lady Zion. And then she speaks in 11c to the end of the chapter as she addresses the Lord and what's been done to her. So we'll see that now as we go through our first point, the great tragedy in verses 1 to 11. The city, you'll notice, is described in verse 1. What, is one, what was once full is now empty. The city is described as a widow She's described as a princess, one who was great among the nations, preserved by God. His history of, of the people of Israel, of the city, is great. It extends back so long. It had a, a pedigree there. But notice the reversal of fortunes. She falls so great that the princess is now a slave. The, the spouse of the Lord is now a widow, and she is in deep distress and sadness. Look at verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. And it says, among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. That phrase is a strange phrase because at this point in the poem, you wouldn't know exactly what's being said. Are her lovers, her, her friends, and those who should have been there to offer her comfort? Well, what you'll see as this poem goes on is rather no, these were her These were her adulterers. These were those she had committed affairs with. Mentions these lovers. What might be unclear in this verse is made crystal clear in verse 5. The widow had played the harlot. The nation of God had turned to adultery. 
And this woman's suffering, Lady Zion's suffering, is a result of her own cheating. And there's a horrible irony then to verse 2, because she is seeking out comfort from anyone, and the lovers she had turned to for comfort, and this is showing the way Israel had turned to other nations and other gods in the process, seeking security. But as this, this Lady Zion had turned for comfort to other nations, what she finds is that she has been betrayed. These she has committed affairs with have turned on her and now assault her. And though she had been part of the people of God, though she would have a divine husband, she has turned away from him and and her lovers and the nations and gods gods that she chose over the true God have abandoned her as well. And so a reappearing theme throughout this entire chapter, you'll notice, is that there's no one to comfort her. She is without comfort. That should strike us as impactful. We who are well acquainted with such statements like, where do you find your only comfort? What is your only comfort? It serves for us as a great security fortress to know that God is our comfort. No matter what happens, God is our comfort. And yet here are the people of God who say they are without comfort. She says this in verses 2, 9, 16, 17, and 21 all that she is without comfort. You can just look as we go through in verse 4, worship has ceased in the land of promise. There are no festivals. There are no pilgrimages to the temple. And then verse 5 pulls in the bitter truth that Lamentations takes head on. The enemies are prospering. The people suffer. And who's behind it? Who's the agent of the loss of the people? It's the Lord. The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. This is what the prophet says. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. The Lord is the true agent of this affliction. And so that little prayer from the little girl caught in a typhoon seems to make sense. Lord Jesus, please, enough. It's interesting that Lamentations brings this from the problem of their own sin. The book of Job presents a lament and grief from the perspective of a righteous man. A man who's suffering despite doing no wrong, despite doing nothing that should have brought this response. And and we work through that in Job, yet in Lamentations we take the lament to its utmost, its, its, its final end. That this lament is coming from someone who doesn't deserve it. Someone who knows her sin. And even the prophet himself stands there and agrees. And yet what is striking is their pain and sorrow. Even the narrator, even the prophet of God stands there and looks at what happened and is shocked. Shocked at what he sees. The fact that this is a lament coming from deep sin doesn't mean we can't speak to, let it speak to us today, that we can't make application from it. Rather, I believe this allows it to be used in any circumstance because it's a lament coming before God from the position where one shouldn't be able to offer it. There's no ground to stand on here from the people of Israel to make this lament and to bring their sorrow before God, and yet they do from the lowest possible perspective. This then provides us a voice from the deepest griefs we could have. 
How many of us don't suffer with sins or, or what we think are the repercussions to failed decisions? How many of us wouldn't say, I really made a mess of my life? And so much of what I'm facing now is because of that. I would have raised my family differently, or I would have, I would have used my younger years differently. I would change what I can, what, what I did, and I can't. A Lamentations is a companion for you, because here we have someone stained with all the marks of adultery, and yet here she comes to lament. Both her and the narrator feel like the punishment was greater than anything that they had seen before, and it feels like it's been punished so severely, and though deserved, it nevertheless hurts. Look at verses 7 through 9. They show the humiliation here. The nations around mock her downfall. Jerusalem has has sinned. It's become filthy and despised. Look at the wording. She's naked, humiliated, and ashamed before all. This is what the narrator is saying. These verses also, depending on translation, depict Jerusalem as either a woman unclean in her menstruation cycle or that she's visibly unclean before all, that she's been, by the Lord's own hand, made bare before all to see that she is humiliated and, and that rather all can see and all assault her. There's the imagery. And in verse 10c, Lady Zion interrupts the narrator and his lament. And so what you see here, put this in your mind, you sort of have the the poet-narrator standing next to this this city, Lady Zion, and, and they're both bringing their appeal, their lament before the Lord, and the narrator, almost like a lawyer or something, is cataloging what's been done and the crimes that she has done. And, and in the midst of this, the, this, this lady breaks out and speaks to her to her husband that she has scorned. And says, Lord, don't you see? Do you see what has happened to me? Knowing full well she's brought it on herself, that's the sorrow. Her uncleanness is visible to all she's laid bare. And here she says, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Words you would not expect the people of God to say seems to be the reversal of all hope. The enemy has triumphed over the spouse of the Lord. In fact, because of that, it would seem the enemy has triumphed over the Lord. This woman who was depicted as a widow, we now question why she's described as a widow. Is she a widow because her husband is dead or because her husband has cast her off? Because her husband has abandoned her, and rightly so. Verse 10 has a graphic depiction of some kind of sexual assault. It's using terminology to describe likely what had happened to the temple, but as well it's using it in words to depict what has happened to this Lady Zion. You can read it and see how it is so described. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. The word behind enter her sanctuary is the one used for marital union And so those have come into her, they have entered her, those whom God had forbade to enter the congregation, those who had no right to enter the temple of the Lord have come in and violated and desecrated the temple of the Lord and is depicted here as the assault against this lady Zion. And if you find yourself appalled and uncomfortable at this imagery, that's exactly the point. You see, what Lamentations does 
is it takes the justice of God and it shows it for what it is. And it is fierce. We'd almost be tempted in our minds to think this is what was coming to her, right? They had scorned the prophet Jeremiah. They had scorned the Lord. They had turned to other gods. They had rejected the true God. He had warned them for years and years. And so you might think, rather than lamentations, this should praise the justice of the Lord, but but even the prophet of the Lord can't even look at it and stomach it because it's so sorrowful. The pitiable state. In Jerusalem's case, that compound tragedy is that she who had run after many lovers among the nations and their gods ends up being viciously violated in the very house of the God she abandoned. Stark, very stark imagery. And this even brings into question through the narrator and the woman herself, does this mean that the Lord himself has been humiliated? His once spouse has now been so mistreated, and in that day and age, it was the, the, the most great offense you could give to someone when the army couldn't protect their own women and children. And now, look at what has happened to the women and children of the Lord's own people. And so has the Lord been brought dishonor? Has he been humiliated here? That's even what's, what's sort of playing at the edges of this. Lord, how could you even allow this to happen? Because you've been now brought into this shame. And then verse 11c, Lady Zion interjects again and, and continues her words. And we see Lady Zion's lament in the second half here. 11c, Lady Zion says, Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Here's that imagery. This is the one who cheated on her husband repeatedly. And everyone else has turned away. And now where does she turn? She turns back. With the, with the hope that she could be heard. It's like she's crawling to them. Put this, put this imagery in your mind. This woman in the sorry state, crawling naked and abused in a famished state, crawling to all who would pass by and say, have you ever seen something like this happen? And the answer is no. Nothing like this has ever happened. Nothing so scandalous like this has ever happened that the people of the Lord find themselves in this sorry estate. Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, is what she says, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger, and yet it is this Lord, the one she turns to. Verse 13 gives a vivid picture of the way she feels. Verses 14 through 16 present a clear history of the facts of what had happened. The Lord has laid on her the the yoke of her sins that has crushed her. The best of her armies, the best and brightest hope that she had has become false for her. And then in verse 18, it's very important. It's sort of a hinge in this chapter. We've witnessed the sad acknowledgement of sins, the shame, the humiliation, and now everything done is what the Lord had warned would happen. And in verse 18, she says the sad truth, the Lord is in the right for I have rebelled against his word. It's all grief. And it's meant to be. Because you know what we're supposed to do with this? Chapter 1 gives us that vocabulary from the place of grief we have caused. And the lament does not try to diminish the sin. Nowhere in Lamentations 
is, is anyone trying to diminish what was done. Trying to say, Lord, I wasn't as bad as all that. Trying to say, Lord, this wasn't warranted. No, there's never that. A lament is coming before God and saying, Lord, help. And the case, God has brought his people to the, the exile. And they've been taught a lesson coming to him to say, Lord, help. Which is what we can and should do in our own situations. Again, you don't need to, to be thinking of some sins that you've caused to be able to apply this to your life. And here's why. Because if someone such as her can make a lament to God, so can you. And if you're making your lament from a place of great, great grief and guilt, you know that the Lord hears your lament as well. She has rebelled against your word, and in the moment of justice, this causes shuddering. And that's what we see here, too. We shouldn't think that the, the judgment of God is a light matter. It's scary. Even those who are trusting the Lord, even those who know that it is right, look upon it and shudder for all that has happened. The lesson from Lamentations 1 is to make our lament to God even when we don't deserve to be heard. But now do you see how amazing that is? Lamentations 1 and 2 does not offer explicitly hope. In fact, in the book of Lamentations, God does not utter a word. And the silence is intentional, it's purposeful. It allows the airspace to breathe and hang there with a lament and, and grief and an unanswered request, it seems. Now, now chapter 3 will bring us to the point all believers should go. But the lament's still there, and what it does then is it serves to allow history and even God's dealing with his people to answer it. You see, the, the very fact that she's bringing a lament has hope. Truly there would be no hope if no words were uttered. But we, we can skip ahead a bit. We can take ourselves out of Lamentations 1 briefly to look and see what is going on here, and that is that this despised, rejected, adulterous bride and people are lamenting before God, and it is a lament that is heard. You see, it sounds so dire, but to know that we make our lament to God even we don't deserve to be heard is an amazing truth and an amazing character of the husband that was scorned of the one who was rejected. The people plead with God not on the basis of their merit, but on the grounds of their distress and groaning. And did you even know that you could do that? That you could plead before God on the simple grounds of your distress and your grief and your groan? That you could come before, Lord, before the Lord simply to offer what is your heart's cry? And to even offer that whimpering prayer, Lord Jesus, enough. See, this is why I hope we see the great picture of our God here. And, and it, it's seen because of the great tragedy. It's seen through the great rejection and sins of God's people. And the very fact that the covenant and lamentations that seems to be completely done away with is intact.
Now, you see what I'm doing? I'm jumping ahead of what chapter 1 and 2 of Lamentations will do. Because at this time, it's giving the mourner the time to just grieve. We confront deep questions that the grieving person has. God is all-powerful. He's all-sovereign. So this is at his hand. This is his plan, and how can that be? We can even think we might be in part to blame for our trial, but how can he seem to respond so harshly? That's a question that's asked. How can he use those or those things that are worse than us to accomplish his justice and judgment? Because Babylon was far worse than what Israel was. All these deep questions and grieving to the Lord, how long, how long will this take place? You see, the hope of Christ can be seen here in the very fact that the narrator and Lady Zion make their appeal to God. Our laments are themselves, in an odd way, a disproof of being without comfort or being without hope. Because we're hoping, even even if it seems utterly ridiculous, that God would hear. And he does. What an amazing picture of our God. We find our answer and our comfort in the God who appears to even now have turned away, but ultimately has not. This means that for those of us grieved by sin and guilt, we lament to God and ask him to hear, to hear our weeping, even when we've caused it. We think to ourselves, we can't, can't bring a lament. It's our fault. How do you square that truth away with what we read here? Absolutely, you can bring your lament to God even when it is your own fault because his answer is far greater. Lament and grief. Bring your laments to God. He always hears even when it seems as if he couldn't be further away. And that's what we'll see in Lamentations. It seems as if he couldn't be further away from ever hearing us. And you may be brought there in your grief. We often are. And God brings us to those places where we seem to to feel forsaken and utterly left alone with a trial we can't endure because it brings these rich truths to the front. Make your lament to God even when you don't deserve it because there's the hope of Christ that hangs in the background. And that's what I mean when I say the the deafening silence of God here. The fact that it's so absent in a way heightens and raises up what's happening because the hope of Christ here is in the fact that it's setting him up of a bride that needs her husband, of a sin-stained people that need cleansing, of one who was once a princess, who is now a slave, who needs redeeming, of a people lost who need to be found. That is the answer that we find here. That is the hope upon which any of us clings, even in the midst of lament. And that's where we'll leave us here in chapter 1 of Lamentations. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we come before you to to praise your name even in the the times of deepest and darkest grief. But we are amazed, O God, to know that we see an example set before us, an example to make a lament to you, to even request deliverance 
when we don't deserve to be heard. Lord, we pray that we would see the grand picture of you in this book, as well as the grand answer to our grief, but we also pray that you would allow us to learn to grieve properly, to be able to bring before you even the deepest doubts of our heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.